Hey, everybody, just a quick note before we begin today's show with Daniel Marins. We're going to be talking about the midterm election results and what that means for progressive and democratic socialist organizing going into 2019 and beyond. Pardon the quality of this intro. I'm doing this from my phone. I forgot to do this in my little makeshift studio, so the quality's a little bit worse than what you're going to be hearing later on in the episode. But if you're a patron, head over to the patron RSS feed, uh, because what you're going to hear in just a couple of minutes is the abbreviated hour-long interview that I did with Daniel. If you want to get the full hour and 45 minutes, you're going to have to become a member of the Dead Pundit Society. And if you're not, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe for at least $5 a month. And not only will you support the New Left Agenda and keep us afloat, keep us growing and thriving into the new year, but you'll also get access to our entire back catalog of B-sides. And we've got episodes coming out like hotcakes, folks. This is the third episode that we've released this week. And uh, there's going to be a whole lot more coming your way next week. I've got Leo Panich on tap to talk about his experience while in the UK. He has access to all of the top leaders of the Labour Party left. And he himself is a luminary and a legend, as most of you will know. Also on tap, I've got the great Matt Carp, who's going to be coming on the show to talk about a recent piece that he wrote about the midterm elections and what that means for democratic socialist organizing and this political revolution that we're trying to accomplish here in the United States and elsewhere. So a lot of great stuff coming up next week. Support that new left agenda. Head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits. Sorry to be rushed through this, but I know you guys want to get onto the show, get to the good stuff, right? All right. On with the show. I mean, I think that's the that's the big thing. I, we only call balls and strikes on dead pundits. There's no, um, I don't like to interject my opinion too much, you know, it gets the people too riled up. You know, I like to be holding my lanyards in the way of the microphone. Let me adjust. Okay. <laughs> Are you recording? Yeah, we're ready to go, man. Let's do it. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome, everybody, to today's Dead Pundit Society. This is a special episode. This is one of the first times we've done this here on Dead Pundit Society. We typically do these virtually. But today I have the honor of being face-to-face, in-house, with the man, Daniel Marins. Thanks for joining us again on Dead Pundit Society. How are you? Great to be here, Adam. I'm all right. Just to remind people, Daniel is a reporter for Huffington Post. He's been covering the electoral beat for some months now, wearing out the soles on his shoes, pounding the pavement, all those good metaphors. Tell our listeners out there a little bit about what you've been up to for the past few months and where you have been. You have been in to far flung places across the country where most of our listeners would never want to go. Where I should let me let me correct that. Where most of our listeners passionately fled from as soon as they turned 18 and never sure. looked back. Uh, where have you been? What have you been up to, man? So I came here, I'm, I'm here in DC, which I no longer live in, or I'm in Northern Virginia, from the Pittsburgh area and, and, a, and a pretty wide swath of Western Pennsylvania. I also was in Lancaster while I was out there, which had an interesting effort from a Democrat that yeah, yeah. was very failed, but yeah. uh, very interesting nonetheless. And over the course of this general election, so I would say sort of after the primaries were over, I was in Minnesota and really all over the state there, including the Twin Cities area and the Iron Range and Duluth. I was in Southern California, Orange yeah. County. Uh, Probably the, a little more woke than Michelle Bachman territory, I would assume, down there in sunny, <laughs> sunny California. Uh <laughs> it was it, i mean don't or, at me if you're from minnesota i don't want to hear from you i, don't I mean care, Ar- orange county is 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 like the long island of <laughs> of of la like it's it's the cradle of, it's actually like it's where john wayne is from okay i mean okay. that's okay uh okay i won't have any john anti-john wayne bias on dead pundit society all right i, I won't have it he's an american hero <laughs> <laughs> yeah John Wayne Airport in Orange, California. That's the, the airport Jesus in Orange, Christ. California in, County is named after him. No. But it, it, it's mainly toxic masculinity international airport. Uh, <laughs> toxic masculinity in rich people. It doesn't, USA, it doesn't quite flow off the tongue as well as John Wayne International. 
um, I was on the road with Bernie. I, I did. Yep. The, I called it the tour to Bernie. I and I was there for sort of poetically enough the South Carolina and Iowa legs. Nice, nice. Uh, you know, how's Bernie on the road? Is he uh, as disheveled? And uh, disconnected. He's just uh, he's, he's fired up. Person. He's fired up. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I didn't know you had a Bernie. You've oh, been hiding dude, that from me. Are you kidding me, man? Me, man? Give I... me your Bernie. You know, you got. Oh, uh, you know, we've been on the campaign trail for quite some time. We've talked to millions and millions of people. All right, that was mine. All right, your turn. Yeah. Well, I mean, Adam, those of us with a nuanced ear can distinguish between the Italian New York accent <laughs> and the and the Jewish one. Um, it was but, as a Gentile, but, but, uh, you'll Ber- have to forgive Ber- me. Bernie's like, his you'll is have more to forgive like, me. I don't have like, it. I don't Adam, have Adam, it. Let, let me ask you something. Do you, <laughs> <laughs> do you have a family? You got insurance from your job? Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am of the view that you should not <laughs> depend on an employer <laughs> to get the health care that you need. That in the wealthiest country in the world, it <laughs> is a moral outrage <laughs> that you have to go hat in hand to your boss. Do you like your boss, Adam? No, anyway. But, <laughs> Like, dude, you got me. Uh, I'm ready to pull that lever. I, I, I literally, well, I interviewed it. him about single Let's payer. And he was like, Dave, I could call you Dave, right? And I'm like, dude, you just you, butchered my name. But you that's can call fine. me like, whatever he's you like, want to call me. You got a family? You got a family? I don't, I don't know where you get your insurance, okay? <laughs> I'm like, um, but uh, no, you know, I mean, it's it's fascinating. They they In South Carolina, it was a crowd of people waving Medicare for y'all placards Ooh, that's fantastic good good branding and good cultural triangulation branding situation yeah and it and it was a great uh, well i don't want to go all the way down my bernie rabbit hole but uh that we'll, we'll get to that when we get to <laughs> when we get to bernie gate is that okay, okay? yeah 100 we should transition bernie gate. we should transition to bernie gate pretty soon actually I but think we can but start then, we can start in the present and then rewind backwards cool that. and and you know uh and then over the so and then i rounded up in in western pa i i uh Oh, so I, I checked out in Lancaster. I checked out um, Just King, who is a like progressive Mennonite uh, activist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. helps refugees build small businesses there. Her husband is the pastor at like the liberal Mennonite church. She's a justice Democrat type, uh, if I'm not mistaken. One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. She's like, one like of the, full on, unabashed, pro Medicare for all, single payer, and she. It's a fascinating story there, but she was. Running in a district, and this wasn't in Western PA, this was like kind of central southeastern PA, but she was running in a district, a judge redrew the congressional districts in Pennsylvania in February, right, right. and her, her district was the one district where Dems really got screwed. And so it went from being like a uh, Trump plus 11 to a Trump plus 26. Yeah, and there yeah, was yeah. an establishment Dem who was favored there and all the, all the money and the official backing. And she was like, fuck it, I'm moving to Harrisburg. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to a different district that got favorable. Yeah. And then she got bumped in a bit of poetic justice, got bumped from the ballot there for not getting the signatures right. Because she paid signature gatherers. She had to do it so quickly. And Jess King was like, screw it, I'm staying. And I believe I can win in this Trump plus 26 district. So I was out there and I was out in, in sort of like the more Pittsburgh area where Connor Lamb won again. And, and in Northwest PA a little bit too. Um, nice. Uh, in terms of over the course of the year, I was in upstate New York, all over Ohio, Chicago, New Orleans. That was more conference stuff. But if I think of anything else at all, so so I, I'm sure you talked to a ton of people. You you've released a, a lot of stories. You're a prolific writer, uh, working that beat hard, putting out five six pieces a week in some cases. I know not as many now because you've been traveling so much. It takes up so much of your time and effort. You got to work a lot harder to get that story when you're actually hitting the beat and talking to people. But tell me some of the little anecdotes. Tell me some of the stories you heard around or across the country, because I think, you know, it's easy for us to talk in these high minded, abstract ways about blue waves and progressivism, this and socialism, that. But you've had your ear to the ground for a long time. Tell me the kinds of conversations that you've had and where people's minds are right now. Um, we hear a lot of things in the mainstream news, a lot of projections what was your experience uh, in talking to these everyday average Joes and Janes and in Ahmeds and Jose's and what have you? Yeah, I, I think that there's sort of the top line stuff, which is a lot of the national trends that you've heard about are very much there. Yeah. The, the, the suburban white middle class or, or not white, uh, but sort of suburban middle class mom is actually dry is probably the most important figure in this election. I, the, the, these are the voters that are flipping districts. Sometimes they're moderate Republicans or sometimes they're Democrats that are volunteering and getting active in a way 
that they hadn't before. And so is this a new layer of activists that you're mainly talking about? People who are now considering themselves actively engaged in politics, whereas they previously were not, or are they more kind of like the swing voter disengaged, but now it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I mean, yeah. I met people, for example, in Orange County who said I voted for Mimi Walters because I just, I, it was just, it was a given. It, it wasn't something that you thought about. You knew that she was going to win, but, Maybe I, I also started to realize, well, I really hate Donald Trump. And what do I extrapolate from that? And, and some people from there, it, it drips down into sort of their, their thinking about other issues, too. And they go mm-hmm. in a more progressive direction. Some of them are really just classic centrists who really dislike President Trump, really dislike his rhetoric, maybe his policies towards immigrants. And they're not necessarily as concerned about economic issues. And I think if you look at the districts that Democrats flipped, and there's now been a net gain of, of 33 seats, including some Dem held seats that were lost. And I can talk about that too, because I actually find that interesting. And, uh, but a very small number and, and mainly really big pickups. It's suburban Houston, suburban Orange County, suburban Detroit, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and suburban New Jersey. I mean, there's one Republican left representing New Jersey in the U.S. House of Representatives. That's that's suburban. Hey, forget about it. Forget. Uh, no, Jersey. How was, that? how was that? Was that a little Where's better? Where's the GOP? Where's the G- <laughs> Maron. No, I mean. Uh, I'm yeah. going to leave the impersonations to you yeah. from here on out. That's all right with you. So you, 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 you've encountered a lot of this kind of organic, um, inchoate, unpredictable raw political consciousness or lack thereof maybe just this kind of like internalized cultural consciousness and, I mean, and look some of it is quite inspiring I, I don't i don't feel uncomfortable saying that yeah. i think that th- there are really and, and and it's funny every one of these groups seems to have like a funny it's, it's facebook i mean the organizing is done on facebook i was knocking doors in in in, a, in the suburb the pittsburgh suburb of mount lebanon and woman answered the door and I was with two women and, um, you know, two moms. And, and she said, Oh, I know you from just another housewife in Mount Lebanon. <laughs> and she's like, wait, don't write that down. I don't want that to seem like, you know, I am a working woman as well. It's just a Facebook group name, but you know, I mean, it's the, it's those little indivisible things that have sprouted up. And in some cases they've been in other, in another part of Pittsburgh, it was, Women for the Future of Pittsburgh, WTF Pittsburgh, and they were getting active in like state legislature races, including challenging the Pennsylvania House Speaker in a way that the official Democratic Party and 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 some of the old labor was was not willing to go there, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so so the, they're they're doing big things. I mean, I, and and it's the it's fierce Lehigh Valley that was another one of the groups. Women for American Values and Ethics in South, South uh, in, in Orange County, um, and sort of the the list of, of different groups goes on, and so that that's the first layer. I think that's kind of the top line story, and then from there, you know, you, you get into more interesting territory. I mean, I, I I did meet people who literally voted though in that top layer. I met people who voted for Hillary Clinton, and then would vote for the Republican, thinking that Hillary was going to win. And that it would be a, a check on her power. So tell me, I think that there's room here to distinguish and delineate between, on the one hand, this kind of, I think we both agree, this disingenuous way that gender has played out uh, in Democratic Party races in, in a kind of um, token tokenized phony sort of way, right? The way that Hillary Clinton weaponized her gender in order to justify a lot of her positions and try to position herself in a, in a variety of ways. They were, they were ultimately unsuccessful, right? Let's be clear, against a, a man as abysmal as Donald Trump. And so on the one hand, I think we can be skeptical of that. On the other hand, it sounds to me like the upsurge and the activity that's being undertaken at the grassroots right now whether it was a blue wave, whether it was a blue trickle, we'll talk about that here in a couple of minutes. Yeah. But whatever happened last Tuesday, it sounds to me like women were at the forefront of these shifts in flipping some of these uh, seats. Is that broadly correct? I think that's 100% true. And I think mm-hmm. that that's true in these sort of middle-class suburbs that I'm talking about, that I do think that in this particular election, were the front line when you – I mean – Dave Wasserman from the Cook, the nonpartisan Cook Political Report, 
did this sort of back of the envelope thing a couple weeks before the election where he said that 63% of the most, the 45 most competitive GOP held seats that Dems are targeting have a whole foods in them. And then it became kind of this whole foods meme, but it, but it is true that, that, that the Democrats had, had a great deal more success in the college educated affluent, uh, or, or somewhat affluent Mm -hmm. suburbs. And that those are the women that powered that. But I think it's also true in, in, in sort of more working class and blue collar communities that women are more receptive to a compassionate message and more repelled by by Trump. And and I and but look, th- there was a little bit of everything. I think that there was a lot of I was in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, in a district that had been more than 20 points for Trump and was, again, redistricted in a more positive direction the Democrat came four points short, a guy named Ron DiNicola, who mm-hmm. is uh, an attorney who actually represented uh, Muhammad Ali, and and he was from the Erie area. And I was at the polling place there and in Newcastle, this, this smaller city in the district, south of Erie, and they said that they had gotten something like two and a half times the turnout that they had received in the 2014 midterms. And I got a chance to meet a young woman who was there who a young african-american woman who was a bartender and she she i said to her did you vote in 2014 and she said no but i want to get rid of trump and so that's the that's the sort of non-voter to voter phenomenon um and then and then we can get into you know kind of the the blue collar white phenomenon and the fact that there are people that voted for trump for various reasons who are maybe willing to give a democrat down ballot more of a chance and in some cases are returning to, to the fold uh, and and these are in lo- a lot of cases people that are that I would not consider ideologically coherent. That they, I mean, I, I met a couple in in an American Legion in one of these steel towns in in Pennsylvania where the the husband was a retired teamster and he was eighty years old and the woman was retired like cookie factory worker and they both voted for Obama and were satisfied with him and then voted for. Uh, the the woman voted for Trump. The man voted for uh, Hillary, actually, which is sort of counter to the stereotype. And right. and she was still satisfied with Trump, but she respected her state rep, and her state rep had gotten behind Ron DeNicola, the Democrat running in the Congress there. And she thought that it wasn't cool that the Republican congressman wouldn't meet with the women protesters mm. who had, and and that's the thing. A lot of these uh, sort of resistance movements started with like. Tuesdays with Toomey, you know, Pat Toomey, the, the Republican senator, where they would just stand and protest outside of his district office, maybe starting during the Muslim ban and then on into the fight mm-hmm. over the Affordable Care Act. So a lot of so for the at the grassroots level, from what you're finding, a lot of this momentum started as a trickle during the post immediate post inauguration wave. Yeah. And it has and, carried forward into the present. And and what's sort of fascinating about that, it, that leftists have, I know you don't like the word leftist. The left is a real thing, but leftist doesn't mean anything. No, no, right? left, leftism. Leftism. Leftism, okay. Yeah, leftism okay. is not a, a coherent a, ideology. A, a person of the left. A person of the left. A person of the left criticized the resistance movement for yeah. its focus sure. on Mueller and, yeah. and all sorts of process-related stuff but what's sort of interesting is that at some point when this um headed into the affordable care act stage the debate took on a different tenor and tone and and it became more about kitchen table issues and then it became about and and i think once the candidates and the political committees got involved i think that uh, to their credit you know the 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 Democratic Party brass understood that they weren't going to win the election based on Russia or anything like that. And so a lot of the fear about the hyperbole around that, about, frankly, even some of the xenophobia around that, I don't think ended up getting played out. This was an election about Trump, but it was also an election, and it's related to Trump, about health care and about wealth distribution in the sense that the tax cuts just did not sell. Yeah, right. The tax cuts were a, a bad, a bad gamble. Now, let me let me ask you, since you've you've hit the beat across the country for the past several months now, and much longer even, a lot of the commentary that you get immediately following the election was a kind of nuanced interpretation, right? It wasn't perhaps the blue wave that a lot of us expected or hoped for, perhaps, 
But given the fact that you have 3.7% unemployment, it was a pretty steady shift. Midterms tend to tend to swing you know, in the opposite direction, and they tend to swing in the opposite direction a lot harder when you're dealing with a uh, recessionary, you know, uh, in a recessionary economy. You know, that happened in 2010, very famously. Following Obama's election in 2008, that was the Tea Party wave in, in 2010. And uh, the fact that there was even a swing at all in the midst of record low unemployment, at least statistically low unemployment, we know how those numbers have been cooked and don't quite reflect reality of people's experience uh, right now. Um, there's a more deep-seated structural unemployment uh, for sure that's set in. But nonetheless, the eco- the economic numbers are fairly high. What was your experience of people's understanding of their place in the economy right now when you talk to them? Was that a high? Was that a high? Uh, was it high on the list of their concerns? Did it? Uh, you, you mentioned. Uh, I think it's very heartening, in fact, that you mentioned that these women uh, gathered around the dinner table and organizing in these hashtag resistance uh, movements are are focused on these bread and butter issues. How did the economy play into to these discussions that you had? Yeah, well, I mean, I think just to start, you make a very good point, which is that, look, there has been a kind of a midterm backlash effect. Going back, we know at least to the 90s. I'm not as familiar with the Reagan years, but 94, of course, that was somewhat to some degree, those were macro trends that were headed there anyway, such as old Southern seats that had no business really being Democratic or, and it was somewhat, there was some fallout over the Clinton proposed healthcare plan. And of course, 2010, 2002 was different because it was after 9-11. But the conventional wisdom certainly is, is that when you have a president in power and they often start out with a unified federal government, that they, that people get dissatisfied and, and deprive them of control of at least one chamber. And I suppose that the Republicans were likely to at least lose some seats this time around, but given given that sort of overall structural trend. But you're right in that the economy is is sort of on the conventional criteria gangbusters. And if there were any year where a party in power could hold off the wave, it would be this year. Mm. I think, and I would say that I, I didn't hear a lot of people saying, I can't find work. I didn't hear a lot of people saying, even talking about that that much. I think, first of all, the first thing to note is just that nationally, we have seen that partisan tribalism, there's less of an incumbent advantage, for example, like a Joe Donnelly in Indiana or Claire McCaskill in Missouri. Once upon a time, they would just get reelected because they were already there and people knew them. Right. But, But now those same voters are watching Fox News and they have more of a partisan identity against the people. I think that's, that's, that's true as well here. And so in terms of the economy, I think that it was at the fore of people's minds in the sense that healthcare is an economic issue. And I think that healthcare was pr- the primary lens through which different issues related to the economy were refracted right, yeah. because, because people are just being screwed. Everybody's got a horror story. Yeah, I mean, it, right. it, it, and, and that includes people making between 15, a hundred grand a year or, or totally, more. And, totally. and, and so, you know, I was, I didn't end up writing about it. I, I gave it to somebody else to write They and they used my interviews. But Luba Gretchen Shirley was a candidate who ran against Peter King in Long Island, who's sort of famous for being a uh, anti-Muslim. Yeah. Um, Huge fucking bigot. I'll say it. You're the reporter. You have to keep your integrity intact. He's an asshole. No, Fuck I would, that guy. I, I would call him a bigot. I would call him a bigot. Yeah, that, that's um, easy. That's easy. <laughs> um, he voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act and- and she was running on single payer and she ended up losing. But I went to one of her round tables and these were, these were the middle-class moms. And again, it just, she wanted it to be about, I, I think the, the round table was officially billed for women's issues and it ended up being 80% of the discussion was about healthcare. You know, people talking about this, I went to the hospital, this wasn't covered. I had a friend who's got a chronic illness. I had a friend who was disabled. Um, it, it, I think if we're talking and you and you often talk about Medicare for all as a non-reformist reform, yeah. there is probably no issue where the public debate has moved in a more progressive direction than this one. And you know, the best evidence of that is that the Republicans were basically 
they tried to depict themselves. They lied about their positions in the, in this race. For the most part, it didn't work in in the races that were truly competitive. They were they were claiming that they were basically in favor of all the regulatory aspects of Obamacare, mm-hmm. all the protections, mm-hmm. all the essential health benefits, keeping drug and, prices down, right, all the pre-existing conditions, the, uh, all all the good candy. stuff, the the yeah. candy, you know, not the broccoli, which is like the individual mandate and all that, yeah. and. And then they would claim that the Democrat, no matter who the Democrat was and what their position was, wanted a $32 trillion government takeover of healthcare. Um, and the fact that they felt obligated to do that, the fact that it mainly didn't really work. Um, Tells you they're on, their, they're on their back foot at the least. Oh, it's, yeah. you know, and, I, and I've heard Republican operatives say to me because I remember I was in the suburbs of Minneapolis uh, canvassing with a Republican and he was... I was interviewing him about his Democratic opponent. And he's like, "I'm for I'm for protecting Medicare, and my my Democratic opponent, he he wants he wants a Medicare buy-in, Medicare for all." And he just dropped that in there, and I was like, "Well, a Medicare buy-in is not Medicare for all." Well, he's like, the "Same thing." Sir. He, he's like, "Oh no, yeah, like oh, yeah, uh, yeah uh, <laughs> Medicare buy-in, Medicare for all." Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, um, and and um, regardless, I mean, he ended up losing his seat. I, I think that the the macro dynamics there were probably what shut him out in terms of like the way the the suburban cultural rever- revulsion to the president. And that was probably maybe the primary driver. But it, at the very least, it shows that the lie component of it, the it doesn't always play. And, you know, and so I talked to Republican operatives when I told recounted this story to a Republican operative, Republican operative said to me, oh, my God, a Republican used the phrase Medicare for all. We, we tell them not to use that phrase. We tell them to say thirty-two trillion dollar government takeover. You know, like they know that Medicare is popular. So, I, so I think that that's the main lens, um, and and I think that there's a general sense among some segments of the population in the more working class districts that something's not right. That the money is is concentrated in too few hands, and and I think that's maybe where the tax cuts kind of came into play. Yeah, so let's let's jump right into this. I wasn't planning on getting into this until near the tail end of the interview, but uh, I think this is a good opportunity to bring this in because it sounds to me like, I mean, there's no question that to his credit, uh, Obama's way of of politicizing healthcare and the way that he did and bringing that to the forefront um, with his what ended up being you know Obamacare, right. The single payer option was removed very quickly before it ever hit the table, and it was sort of watered down. And we get we get uh, you know this market and and this disaster for a lot of people. These high premiums and the lack of accessibility and the way that the private healthcare insurance companies are still very much in the driver's seat. But nonetheless, right, all, all the legitimate criticisms aside, he was able to politicize this issue in a way that has produced this outcome for us and here as we sit here in 2018. And the reason why I sort of was interested in what you heard on the road from the voters about their economic woes and anxieties was I'm, I'm interested in how they're telling these stories. How are they narrativizing their struggles? Because I know I, I know people aren't talking about, oh, you know, I can't find work. But the work that they do have is pretty fucking miserable. And it's oftentimes low paid. It's oftentimes precarious. Um, their wages and benefits are at record lows. Neoliberalism has not been kind to the working class, particularly the rural working class. And I know those outcomes are highly stratified, but but the, confla- the, the, the comparison there is very interesting because you compare the way that people narrativize their, their hellscape, their disaster scenario with healthcare versus their hellscape disaster scenario with their jobs and their incomes. And they're declining economic outcomes. There's a there's a huge disconnect there, and to me, it shows that lack of politicization around an issue has more to do with how I'll say it: elites do or do not prioritize or politicize those issues in people's lives. And so, I guess this is where we can sort of transition. We can use this as a as a leading provocation. We can transition into the some of the takes about the election. Because my contention moving into this terrain is that to the extent that quote unquote economic issues are or are not viable ways to win elections, it's not as though like 
people's sentiment is just out there. And, you know, we, 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 we have, uh, you know, dogs with strong noses and we try to identify the existing sentiment, right? I think the essence of politics and doing politics is that we have to create that sentiment. We have to politicize those arenas in ways that will otherwise be sort of swept under the rug. People will grit and bear a lot of bullshit in their day-to-day lives before they really, you know, identify the source of their problems. And so, you know, I think, I think now, anyway, we're, we're, we're getting into the weeds. This is what we do, but, um, let's talk a little bit about, you can obviously respond to that, but let's talk about it in context of some of the dominant interpretations of the outcomes of this election. One of those interpretations is that progressives failed. Um, the key progressive races that a lot of people were looking to as litmus tests as to whether or not this, this progressive Sanders or Warren's style approach was going to work or not, those races failed. And therefore, that is not a viable strategy going forward into 2020. What do you make of that argument? I've thrown a lot at you. Let's, uh, let's, let's, <laughs> let's unpack this. Okay. Well, maybe I'll start in reverse order. I, I think I'll tell you what progressives don't have right now, a couple days after the election, they don't have a good proof of concept, a good archetype where they can say, this was a swing seat. This was a seat that maybe even, maybe even a Republican held seat that Clinton won in 2016, where our lefty candidate showed that at the very least, their lefty views, whether it's Medicare for all or tough bank rules or some form of college subsidy or $15 minimum wage, you can go down the list, was at the least not a liability. And, and, and right now, that example, that case study does not really exist. We, 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 have, we have Sherrod Brown and Tammy Baldwin who are, Tammy Baldwin is on the, was on Bernie's single payer bill. Sherrod Brown was not probably for tactical reasons. And, but he's, He's a foe of the banks. He's the ranking Democrat on the banking committee. And he he really fought to oppose the deregulation that unfortunately many of the Democrats on his committee signed on to. And I think he's certainly in the in the left wing of the like the progressive wing of the party. He's such, hanging, on, such to, as he's it hanging is. on to Dodd-Frank against all odds. And uh, he's probably for Medicare for all in his heart of hearts. I think, becomes, I think probably when yeah. it becomes strategically advantageous for him to pursue. It's a tough state. It, um, you know, that's a state that Trump won by nine points or yeah. not. He's not a Joe Manchin. Let's be clear about that. I mean, right. I, I, I've been pushing back online against people who suggest that Sherrod Brown's our, our, our best hope above and beyond Sanders or Warren say in 2020. But uh, there's no doubt that he's been able to square a circle that's pretty, pretty fucking uh, brutal. Uh, but let me, let me pushing back. There's one commentator. I can't remember where, where I read this, but he, I think he was spot on. It might have it might have been Dave Weigel who sort of said, you know, the problem with with this election cycle is that, you know, Bernie Sanders clean house. And uh, nobody's pointing to that as a as as a, as a, what was the way you put it as a, um, a litmus test, as a um, a case study, a proof positive. Of, of this strategy because he's been winning for, for decades and he just sort of wins as he cleans house and we just sort of go home and we expect him to win. The people who are really carrying the banner for progressive and socialist politics in the electoral arena, they won handedly. They were supposed to win. And so that's not exactly the, the, the proof positive that you're looking for in order to. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, let me, let me throw a couple more just figures out there. Cause I think it is important to know right now the Democrats are looking at, Upwards of a 33 seat net gain. The New Democrat PAC, which is, you know, represents the New Democrat caucus in, in the House, which is a pro business sort of 90s era caucus. Now, it, now it's, it's a little more complex. The, 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 these are individual members that were individual candidates and members to be were backed by this PAC. I, I met one of them in Michigan, Haley Stevens, who, who worked for the Obama administration, their auto bailout. And she told me she was against the Dodd-Frank rollback. And so these are not necessarily your grandfather's new Democrats. Things have changed even in that world. And a lot of them are in favor of a Medicare buy-in or a lowering of the age. There are all sorts of interesting elements there. But they claim that 23 of those 33, they endorsed and financed and and helped or or fundraised for them. I mean, they, they would give them 
sort of the maximum amount available from a pack, which I believe is like five grand per primary and then in general. I haven't broken down. I mean, Seth Moulton is a, is a veteran and a congressman from Massachusetts who has sort of created a network of donors for primarily for veterans and, and, and primarily moderates. Uh, and and on what the, the way he has set up his fundraising committee, we're talking about just huge sums of money that and, and he, because he's based in Massachusetts, he gets like the CEO of Bain to right, yeah. funnel in. If you, as long as it's twenty seven hundred per cycle per candidate, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's a joint fundraising committee. So CEO of Bain and the CEO of Bain's wife, you can bundle a, these, right? And, and, right. and the children if they're of age and cousins and yeah. So so they have had an outsize, uh, especially financial inputs. I think I think one of the most important takeaways for me, obviously, right? The left has a net gain in Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, John Conyers. His old seat was replaced by someone of equal equally vigorous progressive convictions uh in rashida talib uh keith ellison replaced by ilhan omar someone of equally progressive convictions we think you know but in terms of if, if you're a candidate who wants to run as like a as a true sort of social democrat in the hudson valley of new york in a district that obama won twice but a but trump won by nine points or six points or whatever the case may be that's New York's 19th congressional district, you don't get a nest egg. You get a rally from Bernie. And and that's something that I think maybe needs to be re-examined. Do you think this turn to small donors that Bernie has, has famously capitalized on in, in, you know, in 2016, do you think that uh, relying on that is not necessarily a generalizable strategy for these progressive and, and social democratic uh, candidates? Well, there, there's an interesting question, I guess, because so one of the things that I've been kind of intrigued by is that there's a group and they're mainly former sort of Democratic Party staffers who have founded a group called End Citizens United, which sounds great. OK, Citizens United decisions. That's, that's a terrible decision. We should end it. It's also the very bare minimum of what you could do to reform the campaign finance system. Right. But they what they've done, though, is they have promoted they haven't required it for an endorsement, but they've promoted and they have a pack. It's not a super pack, but it's a pack, which means they're subject to some limits in the size of their donation. They have encouraged candidates to take a pledge not to take corporate PAC money. And thus far, about 30 of the candidates who they had taking, I think it's 30, let me just make sure. Yeah, 30 new House members have already pledged not to accept corporate PAC money. I think that you can look at it a couple different ways, though, right? Because a lot of those candidates still accept leadership PAC money, which means that Nancy Pelosi is bundled or she's or the one bundling the, the, the corporate PAC money the and then, then just giving it to you. She's the, the or 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 Steny Hoyer, who is politically far to her right. I mean, really. So so you can argue how legitimate that is, but the problem is is that the centrist establishment fights the corporate PAC ban so vigorously that i do think that they think it is a net financial loss and so i think that it is significant enough to yeah. like if, yeah. let me put it to you this way if you're yeah. not willing to do that that probably says something yeah if you pay attention to how your enemies receive your uh your positions right if your enemies don't like it well, that's probably a good thing right at right. least in most in most instances yeah and then you have the fact that the congressional progressive caucus also takes corporate PAC money and a figure like Pramila Jayapal, who is in a safe seat in Seattle and takes corporate PAC money, I probably trust her on the issues just because I think that she's a true believer and she never has to worry about re-election. Then, you know, despite her taking that money, then I do a candidate who's doing it and has all sorts of policy positions that are worse than hers. But that said, I think it's probably a, a sort of a healthy development. And I think in terms of helping lefty candidates, I don't think the answer is that we need to be more realpolitik about campaign finance in the short term. I think the answer is that there's got to be, it doesn't need to be the same scale. It doesn't need to be the same scope, but there's got to be a progressive sugar daddy. There's got to be a a National Nurses United or or a, a labor union or or someone that can step in to help someone at least get off the ground at the primary level so they can go toe to toe with the DCCC anointed candidate or or 
or another corporate anointed candidate. But the other thing that I think people need to go back to the drawing board about is just organizing prior to the electoral level. The the two candidates at the and again, and this is in the House who defeated DCCC, and again, that's the, the the campaign arm of House Democrats who defeated their anointed candidates in their primaries in Omaha, Nebraska, and that was Nebraska's second district, Cara Eastman. She was a pro single payer person who also defeated an anti choice guy. But he had held the seat before and and she defeated him in the primary and the DCCC to their credit got behind her in the general and the same thing in, in, in the Syracuse area. And that was a more ridiculous situation where all the local Democratic parties had had, had sort of coalesced behind a, a faculty member at Syracuse, Dana Balter, and she was sort of progressive in all, in, in all kinds of ways. And there was Juanita Perez-Williams who had fe- who was a veteran, but who had which the DCCC looks hard at, and then, but had failed in a 2016 mayoral contest in Syracuse. And she got her ass handed to her in the primary, and Dana Bolter then also lost. So if you're a progressive and you think, okay, yes, it's very hard to beat the House, you know, like in casino sense, and, you know, it's very hard to beat the House of Blackjack. It's very hard to beat the DCCC in a primary, and, 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 and their various sort of big donor or well-heeled people because again that's what they care that those are the things that they kind of care about in a craven sort of way golden rule that's what tom uh, tom ferguson calls the golden rule very infamously in the academic political science uh, world right uh, money talks seems very uh you know obvious and banal even but uh yeah m- money talks and uh, i mean especially in a system where you're going to need to raise you know, three or four million dollars to, yeah. to to run a house race now, yeah. and every year it goes up. Yeah. So, particularly if you're going at an incumbent in the primaries, right? I mean, how much money was injected in the Buffy Wicks, uh, Javanka Beckel contentious? Well, that, that's also a very different situation. You're talking about California, which it's like different world, right? It's, yeah, that that was an interesting uh, race, though. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't go deep on that race, but I can tell you that it's weird when you have you know essentially. New York. Some sometimes you see these races in, in deep dark blue areas in New York State. Other times you see it in uh, in California, places like California, where you have uh, like minded people going going at it. Well, in uh, California, you've got a, a top two primary system where yeah. it's it could be dem on dem in the general. It's very odd. Yeah, that's it's not it's not what what I mean to say is it's a, it's a it's an instructive case for like say socialist versus neoliberal Democrats. It's not really generalizable uh, nationwide. I should I should reiterate that was an interesting race, and I think one of the things about that race is that I didn't I don't think that Javanka Beckles was good enough at code switching. I mean, if there's enough gentrification going on, unfortunately, in the East Bay, that she needed to be able to speak to the technocratic crowd and you know and wonk speak, and just looking at it remotely, not having been there on the ground again. Full caveat on that the rigor that you need to engage maybe some of the tech crowd or to at least shut them down is is something that needs to be practiced. I mean, the left needs to be twice as good. It, it, it's just, um, but, you know, I think, I think the question that, that the left and progressives in general sort of, I use that term, however one identifies the left more broadly needs to engage with is that in the fights that they won in primaries, at the congressional level, they lost in the general. Aside from Ocasio-Cortez, which was a safe blue seat. And and so now this is a gerrymandered map. And the people that I talk to that are that are working in this world think that it's just a long slog. And that they, they consider it a win that the centrists are yesterday's leftists. Yeah, you know, right. you're the, moving the, that Overton window. You're you're changing right, the stakes of right. what's passable, and and the state legislatures are a lot easier. I mean, one of the things I sent you before that we started here is, I think one of the biggest victories for progressives. So uh, Democrats are, are are we think on track now to to win something close to 400 state legislature seats, and famously under Obama. At its trough, Democrats lost about a thousand. About a thousand, uh, you know, at at its trough, and that's slowly been, which I think, which according to the deal, which according to the Democratic Party, was in 2014 or 2015, and and they flipped uh, at least seven state legislative chambers, but one of the most significant of those, to my mind, was in New York, where you had an internecine battle between 
a centrist, pro-corporate, and really just sort of pro-corporate might be too generous to it because it's it's a lot of it's just kind of incumbent machine Tammany Hall style stuff. I, I I would I would love to see the day when Governor Andrew Cuomo just signs a single payer bill so that he because he thinks it's what's what's the new big thing you know like, yeah yeah like yeah. I mean yeah. he's I wouldn't put it past him he he's right right I mean so but but in in the embodiment of Andrew Cuomo a guy who is so committed to not threatening his donor base that he literally allowed a renegade faction of Democrats to caucus with Republicans mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. years yeah and. And actually also allowed Republicans to gerrymander the state Senate there when they held it in 2012. Just sit back and let it happen so as not to and, uh, disrupt. Right. A, and disrupt nor- a normally the line is partisan loyalty. Yeah. But this was a guy who uh, partisan loyalty, loyalty. Uh, right. Th- th- that was, you know, forget about ideological loyalty. This guy couldn't even hand his, his party control of the state Senate. And so state level single payer, basic modernization of voting rights. I mean, the idea that New York a supposedly blue state doesn't have early voting same day registration. I mean, you can go on and on and on. I I need to get a new driver's license or non-driver's license ID in order to vote there. They basically have voter ID. This was one of the main strategies of uh, Ocasio-Cortez when she was trying to get on the ballot and register her supporters to vote. Ballot laws are are, are terribly restrictive in that state. Uh, They're they're pretty onerous. There were were two separate primaries. There was a congressional primary day in June and a state-level gubernatorial and state legislative primary in September. And almost oh. nobody knows this. Uh, right. Know, so you can't guarantee, yeah, you can't guarantee one good candidate will bring out uh, the votes for, for the rest. You don't get this sort of down ballot effect. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people rely on in the primaries. And, and also just ignorance. I mean, it's like nasty. how many people know to show up for two primaries? The, the, in the end they were hoisted by their own petard. I mean, I think that, that Ocasio-Cortez overperformed because of the enthusiasm of her base in what the machine was counting on being a low turnout election. But regardless, that's sort of an aside. The Democrats on a map gerrymandered to benefit Republicans in the New York State Senate romped and flipped five state Senate seats. They already had a technically one seat numerical advantage. And in the September primary, they ousted six out of eight of the renegade Democrats. So not only are we talking about flip seats, uh, red to blue, but those blue seats are far darker blue. Far bluer. No, and, 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 and in Ocasio-Cortez's uh, Cortez, uh, case, uh, a different shade of red, if you, <laughs> if you smell what I'm cooking. So let's move now to this portion of our chat. Let's talk a little bit about some of the outcomes of the midterm election last Tuesday. I think one of the more one of the bright spots that we saw as progressives, as democratic socialists, as people on the left, are these ballot measures that succeeded. I think one of the more historic ballot measures that went down was in the state of Florida, where you had the what is it the I was I was struggling to find a word uh, to to capture the essence of this on the B side that just dropped. It's a Re-enfranchisement? Is that a proper use of English? Uh, as the, as the I, I don't see why not. I mean, unless, unless it's just unless it's just an enfranchisement because they never had that right. Or I, but well, they yeah. once had it. They once had it. So so long right. story short, a, a, approximately a million felons in the state of Florida. I think it's one point four million. One point four million felons. Uh, former felons. Former felons uh, who have been given the vote back, returned, restored. Uh, the right to vote in their state. The fact that they lost the right to vote in the first place is nothing short of a scandal in the Western world. I think most of the uh, European, even Central South American democracies uh, would scratch their heads and be very confused at the fact that anyone in the United States could have their right to vote uh, stripped away for any reason. But uh, that is the case here in the US of A. (laughs) And 1.4 million Former felons were restored in their right to vote. And yet, Andrew Gillum, a progressive, uh, at least you might certainly say, very liberal uh, candidate in the state of Florida, narrowly lost that election. You saw similar ballot measures go through in places like Missouri and across the country. I'm not exactly up on all of those right now, but in almost every instance where a progressive ballot measure succeeded, you saw the narrow failure of the candidate in that state. Some people are reading those tea leaves and suggesting that that means the candidate 
Democratic candidate who lost, didn't go far enough in pushing traditional progressive uh, values, that it shows that there's this underlying sentiment that wasn't quite effectively tapped into that could have led them to victory. I know there are a lot of states and a lot of different races and a lot of different contexts to play uh, in terms of making that judgment. But what's what's your uh, broad take on that? Do you think there's any truth in that statement? Do you think that some of these candidates squandered a potential victory by not diving into these progressive, uh, maybe more economic issues? Big question. I would say mainly not. But I I think that there's – I mean especially – just the one that stands out to me is Gillum. I mean, I, I think that he had a very robust criminal justice reform platform, and he certainly emphasized that sort of thing. and And I think he was associated closely with the referendum. I think the the, the problem is is that, and and I see you know Missouri is another case, right? Medical marijuana, a minimum wage hike sort of a process reform issue on the on the congressional redistricting is that and and it's and it's kind of an interesting problem and I think it is uniquely american which is that partisan identity has become a sort of a question of of culture and and tribal identity rather than rather than policy and that's something that the left really really needs to reckon with i i think that there are any number of reasons why i mean and what's sort of interesting about florida right is, is that that referendum also is sort of very racially imbricated right in the sense that there are such deep seated stereotypes and fear mongering around sort of crime and and and, yep. and morality and everything mm-hmm. and the Willie Horton strategy, right? Still, right, still alive right. and well, and, and and they use that Willie Horton strategy very effectively against Gillum in terms of sort of raising the specter of the crime-ridden Tallahassee urban life. I <laughs> I, I didn't think that that was a thing, but uh, okay, whatever. Uh, yeah. And for some reason, that specter was not as effective in in killing the referendum. And and I think interesting. Right, I mean, we're 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 sort of spitballing here. I mean, I, I wasn't down there. I'll be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, I, yeah. But I do think that that also could be partly a broader cultural shift on on marijuana, on a sense maybe that it it could be the 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 fact that the drug war and the carceral state have gotten so large, and the deterioration of the economic base in this country has gotten so widespread. That white people feel the brunt of it too, and yeah. so they might not vote for Andrew Gillum, but they understand right. that that the carceral state is has gone too far, or or that or that democracy shouldn't be uh, subject to this. I think also in Missouri of of the ballot initiative that back in August during the primary overturned uh, the state's right to work law. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, when you take these issues, I mean, minimum wage increases have been winning in the South as ballot initiatives, usually modest ones. Mm-hmm for for years now and that's something again like i really think that that's something that the left needs to struggle with and and figure out how do you how do you uh maybe organize in the off years in a way that that sort of allows people to see these uh, see through their cultural blinders or how do you find candidates that can at least meet the cultural packaging in these areas and, and, and still champion your issues? I think, again, you know, I mean, uh, to, to offer an answer to the kind of question uh, that I raised initially, and this isn't, you know, one of my own making. This is if, you, if you're into the hot take economy, as you and I are and many of our listeners are out there, you'll, you'll know that a lot of the, the people out there trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, and try to figure out, okay, what do these midterm elections tell us? What, what signals uh, what signals can we decipher from the noise? And this is one way to do it, right? You sort of uh, measure the success of ballot measures versus the success of various candidates. And when you see this seeming mitch- mismatch, uh, you, you try to figure out, what, okay, so what the fuck is going on here, right? What's really happening? What's playing out? How can we see where this might may or may not be headed in 2020? What what do we lean on? What do we What direction do we try to pursue, right? And And I think like, again, like perhaps this is another instance where, a realm of society that has 
has been a problem for a long time. Mass incarceration is not new. Uh, the effects are not new. However, it is relatively new that mass incarceration has become politicized. Uh, I, I think you know, I just I can't I can't oh, I can't stress this enough. And this is something that I really want to take on in terms of of this show and what we focus on in the coming year or or more. Hopefully, is is the way in which you know human beings are resilient, resilient creatures, and we'll grit and bear a lot of shit. You know, right? And, and we all do every day. Uh, the question to me then is, why does one issue become this political football, this mainstream political football, whereas others that are causing just as much suffering, just as much deprivation are, are just sort of still kind of seething below the surface. I think this is, I take this to be the essence of what Bernie Sanders talks about when he talks about a political revolution. That this means that, that, that certain issues that are sort of seething below the surface need to become become politicized. They need to become political issues, not just the things that people sort of develop individual survival strategies to overcome. And I think that's really the question for me going forward. I talked about this uh, sort of as we opened the show, uh, this is kind of leading provocation that I wanted to sort of return to at the end. And, you know, uh, what are some of the hot button issues? To me, it's less a question of how do we read these elections and what does that tell us about 2020? And to me, it's more about how do we think about politicizing the issues that may or may not have been as successful um, in the coming days? And you talked about some of the people you, 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 you chatted with across the country. They had very inconsistent ideologies, very inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, the way you've described it, right, normies that yeah. don't connect, what was Amber's definition, yeah. that don't connect their... People for whom uh, politics is just a means to an end. It's not uh, an identity. It's not something they uh, sort of engage in as a... And even a and even at that, sometimes an, in, an inconsistent one. I mean, I, I, I managed to meet these sort of people with a union background, and this was just in my last trip, who... For some reason, I mean, frankly, if it were means to an end, it would be one thing. It sounded a lot like personal distaste here and there. I mean, it really just sounded sometimes like oh, that's, that guy seemed okay. The other guy yeah. didn't. And I could say, I mean, how many times you? I could say I could have a beer with that guy, right? Right. That's the, it's the George W. Bush appeal over Al Gore. People could imagine themselves sitting down and drinking a beer with him. So what? So I think that the answer probably is is that. Organize on labor. Or, organize these people to to have a consciousness that transcends the sort of personal visceral impression, so that they're they're not always uh, occasionalers. That 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 they are that they feel very vested in outcomes. And because because I, I personally think that even with the narrow choices that we have, that there is always an outcome that affects people. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think I think communicating that is 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 hard work, and it requires leaving a cultural bubble. It probably requires some kind of a material relationship, and that's what a labor union provides. And it also requires a a tolerance of of cultural differences. So yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. I think this is one of the places where, who oh boy. And that concludes the free preview of my chat with Daniel Marins. It's me again, talking to you from my cell phone, hence the shitty audio quality. Uh, but clearly, if you're listening to this, that means you're not a patron. And uh, you're going to miss out on the final 45 minutes to an hour of the chat that I had with Daniel. We talk about his experience with Bernie Sanders. We talk about some recent gaffes that Sanders uh, is said to have committed in the mainstream news with respect to his anti-oppression, anti-racist politics. And we break that down and what that means and what the what the media is on about uh, in their constant Bernie smears. Uh, we break down the Elizabeth Warren wave. It looks like Katie Porter, as I record this in my car, is going to pull off her election. Uh, it looks like the mail-in votes are coming in and they are predominantly in her favor. So she's going to win that race, uh, which is which runs contrary to what we said earlier in this chat. And uh, so that's good news for the progressives in the uh, House of Representatives. Anyhow, uh, Porter is a Warren style Democrat, 
And, uh, you know, in this day and age, we could do much, much worse. So glad to see Katie Porter's going to pull that out. But anyway, that's just one update. We've got a lot of other stuff in the remainder of this episode. If you're not a patron, you're going to miss it. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. You guys know the address by now. Support the New Left Agenda. Additionally, we're asking people to donate one hour's worth of their wage per month to help keep our operations afloat. Uh, to the patrons out there who have already taken me up on this offer, you're not listening to this, but uh, big ups to them. We have uh, half a dozen or more, pushing a dozen people who have taken us up on this offer just in the last week alone. We are flattered and incredibly honored that people care enough about what we do to support us on that level and uh, keep us growing and thriving into the new year. We do this. Uh, we put in those 40, 50 hour work weeks in order to bring you the hottest takes from the best people out there. Uh, this takes a lot of work. I assure you, this is not a matter of just getting on the microphone for a couple hours a week. Uh, we do all of our processing, all of our producing, uh, our interviews, our vetting, our research in house. It's predominantly me and Amy and uh, occasionally a producer on the side, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work and uh, we require the generosity of our patrons to keep us afloat. So enough out of me, head over to Patreon to get the rest of this episode and our entire back catalog of B-sides. Until next week, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...